Hello everyone, welcome back to our series of discussions on the book of Isaiah. We're very glad to have you here with us. A few of us are missing and some of us replaced. Uh, we've got Clancy here instead of Locke, which is great, uh, to share her insights. And Luke's not with us, he is uh, attending a birthday function for a grandmother who's turned 100. So we'll miss him, but he's obviously needed where he is. Uh, my name's Cameron. I'm recording from Launceston, Tasmania, and I'm looking forward very much to today's discussion. Yeah, g'day. Ken, also from Launceston, and great to have you with us, Clancy. And I'm Clancy, up in Lake Macquarie, on just north of the central coast in New South Wales. Last week we talked a bit about Isaiah 6. We sort of, uh, I was going to say, cleared up some issues. I think that's not quite fair. I think it'd be more true to say we uncle- we muddied up our discussion from the week before, and uh, raised all sorts of other curly questions. Mentioned briefly the first half of Isaiah 7, and the lesson this week uh, picks up at Isaiah 7, uh, about verse 14, I think. Ken, do you want to start reading for us from Isaiah 7, verse 14? Uh, No, I'm going to start from Isaiah 7, verse uh, 10. Uh, Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines, and in the crevices in the rocks, on all the thorn bushes, and at all the water holes. In that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the river, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs, and to take off your beards also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of the milk they give, he will have curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day... In every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will only be briars and thorns. Men will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. Then the Lord said to me, Make a large signboard and clearly write this name on it, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. I asked Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah, both known as honest men, to witness my doing this. Then I slept with my wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Call him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before this child is old enough to say Papa or Mama, the king of Assyria will carry away both the abundance of Damascus and the riches of Samaria. Then the Lord spoke to me again and said, My care for the people of Judah is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. They are rejoicing over what will happen to King Rezin and King Pekah. Therefore, 
The Lord will overwhelm them with a mighty flood from the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. This flood will overflow all its channels and sweep into Judah until it is chin deep. It will spread its wings, submerging your land from one end to the other, O Emmanuel. Huddle together, you nations, and be terrified. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle, but you will be crushed. Yes, prepare for battle, but you will be crushed. Call your councils of war, but they will be worthless. Develop your strategies, but they will not succeed. For God is with us. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Uh, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his house from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists, who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Mm. Well, what an uplifting read. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that, that jumped out of that for me. One of them is that the king of Syria lends himself to many metaphors. Yes. Uh, he's, what is he? He's a uh, well, at the start of And from... in the chart, start of chapter 7, he is a burning brand that's smouldering and about to go out. So he, just before this, he already has one chalked up to him. And then he's a swarm of bees, and then he's a razor that's going to shave everyone's head, and then he is likened to the river, mighty floodwaters. Mm-hmm. I, I had a little giggle about halfway through that I managed not to do it to the microphone. Um, when Cam, I think you read Don't Call Conspiracy, what others call conspiracy, yeah. and weren't, weren't you proposing new and... Improved conspiracy theories a couple of weeks ago? I was. I was, yeah. Uh, it's not clear to me exactly what the point of that passage about conspiracy is. I think I think what God's saying is all these people are frightened of, of various political forces around them, but you ought to be frightened of God. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that, that is a direct answer to chapter 7, verse 2, which is the news had come to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear, and that's the that's the fear not it, that won't happen. Mm. That's that's that was last week's discussion. But um, so that's that conspiracy is a direct. There is a, a actual explicit conspiracy that's in reference to. But it doesn't seem that what God's got planned for them is much nicer than their conspiracy. No, it sounds like it's worse. <laughs> I did find I do find the. Um, the imagery in the end of chapter seven is is very bleak and really evocative when it says that 
You know, how many times it says that it will become nothing but briars and thorns. Um, mm. I think there was a bit of an emphasis there. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it just it being a wasteland. And I think, I, I guess the implication is there, there's no one to cultivate. If all of the, all of the good land is turned into a wasteland covered in weeds and nasty weeds at that, there is no one to tend. There is no one to make it fertile. You know what I mean, mm. and that's that is yes. more that's that's far more bleak than look out, you're all going to die. You know, the fuel lakes on Frank, we're all going to die. Yes, yeah, but there's a fair bit of of sort of alarmist language in this. Mm. In between it, though, are, are peppered, uh, you know, small little gems of hope. Mm. But it seems to be hope for Isaiah personally, so he doesn't hold much hope for the people of Israel, because uh, they've completely on the wrong track. But he says in verse 17 of chapter 8, you know, I will wait for the Lord. Mm. I will put my trust in him. And and that's enough for me, even though all this awful stuff is going to happen. It also, something else that jumped out at me was a continuation of this same uh, strategy or pedagogical device that God's using, perhaps, or maybe, as as we discussed last week, just an honest statement of his intent. This idea that uh, that God is setting out to deceive the people of Israel or to, uh, you know, it says here that God will be a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Mm. And then when it says earlier on, so this is the passage I was looking for, and earlier on in chapter 8 where God's saying, all right, well, go on, go on. Uh, do all your strategy, plan plan your military campaign, do it all. That's good. It won't make any difference. It seems very much to be like, all right, well, listen with your ears, but you you won't understand it, which we had in chapter 6. Although that really is a statement made to the nations, uh, that is to uh, Assyria, those who are going to destroy um, uh, I don't know what God's that means. people. Um, if you like, I can search the web. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Uh, uh, Siri thought I was talking about her when I spoke about Assyria. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> um, in, in any event, um, I thought that was one passage that did jump out at me uh, yeah. where it says, okay, go and do what your worst. Um, it's not going to help you because God is with us. Mm. And yet he's just been saying... Um, uh, in fact, it is going to work. We're going to overrun, Syria is going to overrun you. Um, so I'm a bit confused. Yeah, I think some of it is, you know, God saying you're so worried about what these people are going to do to you, but you are, you know, you're, you're worried about these other people who are going to do bad things, but look at all the things you've been doing. You you know, you've, you've abandoned God, you've abandoned his way. Um, and that's, don't worry about that. You know, don't worry about what's happening over there. Worry about what's happening right here with you because that is the reason the problem is happening. That it's it's not this is not going to come because of a conspiracy of other people. This is happening mm. because you have rejected God. Um it's a very confronting message and I think maybe that's part of why the frustration that seems to come out in that opening passage that you read Ken where where he's asked to put God to the test. No, no, I won't put God to the test. How long How long will you try my patience, House of David? Because what's the answer God's going to give him? 
they're not coming for any other reason other than what you've been doing. The answer, putting the Lord to the test. I wonder if Ahaz knew that he was going to hear some pretty bad stuff if he put the Lord to the test or asked God for the the straight answer, that he was Mm. going to get it and he really didn't want to, but he does anyway. There are all sorts of problems with putting God to the test. Uh, Indeed, was one of the temptations uh, that Christ faced. Uh, At least he responded by saying, I'm not going to test God. Um, And uh, Jesus himself, when he was tested, uh, or when people tried to test him, uh, they generally came out not looking as good. Mm. Uh, So um, there's perhaps wisdom in uh, in not testing God, Uh, and yet he's criticised for it here. Well, I think the reason he's criticised is because he's trying to avoid... He's trying to put a, you know, push off the blame of what is about to come upon Israel on, oh, look, these people are coming to get me. Well, ask, well, do you want me to tell you why? No, no, don't tell me why. Don't tell me why. I don't want to know. Well, I'll tell you why anyway. It's because of what's happened. I mean, I said when we finished reading that passage, well, that's a very bleak reading. And the reason is, and of course you have to divide things up when you're covering 13 weeks of things, but it's not, it's not that that's the issue. It's the artificial chapters and verses that are put on so that we can find things. And it means that it feels artificially like this finishes in the end of chapter 8. And it doesn't. This, this answer that God, this, this message that God sends through Isaiah, this section of it goes on until the end of chapter 13. Um, it goes on and on and on again. I mean, the, the, it goes on and it talks about hope and it talks about the remnant that will, that will return and it talks about hope for Israel's people and it talks about the branch from David's line and the wolf and the lamb will lie down together is all in this same passage. But, of course, when you stop in the middle of the very, very bad news, um, you don't, you know, it's like reading a book, a very, very scary book and not getting to the, and they all lived happily ever after at the end. Um not that that's exactly what happens here, but you know, you you, you get my point. I think the um, Perlitzer Prize-winning author who wrote my favourite work, a guy called Frederick Beekner, uh, wrote the book called um, "Telling the Truth: The Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale." And his initial point is that uh, it is only when we recognise uh, the tragedy that we can move into um, the comedy and the fairy tale. Uh, The good news uh, can't be the good news uh, without the bad news first. Um, There's some degree of discomfort, I feel, in expressing it in that way. Um, And I have to say, I've never found the uh, uh, strategy of uh, persuading everybody how terribly bad they are um, before um, we give them a magic way out uh, as being a, a, a very effective evangelistic strategy indeed um but uh, well one it seems to be something that might be happening here <laughs> well well one of the themes that we've pulled out in our discussion so far is that uh, a little more introspection might be good uh, we might be perhaps less concerned about how bad other people are and think more carefully about our own failings it certainly seems to be something that Isaiah is recommending to the people. Uh, on a on a slightly different note, our discussion this is from a few minutes ago. Uh, Ken, you were talking about uh, how advisable it might be to 
test the Lord. And I thought of an excerpt from Adrian Plass's first sacred diary <laughs> where he's, he's very distressed because he's he's committed himself to do some street evangelism. Oh, no. Not and this he's, bit. He's, ter- he's terrified. And before the day before, he's, he's, he, he's, he's very worried about having to stand on the street and evangelize. And he said, he writes in his diary, I had a silly, sweaty, quiet time. Started by asking God for a sign that it would go all right this evening. Then remembered that bit about, it's a wicked generation that seeks a sign and felt guilty. Then remembered John the Baptist losing his confidence in prison and felt all right again. And then remembered about doubting Thomas and felt guilty again. And then I remembered Gideon's fleece and felt all right again. Might have gone on like this forever, but then called out to say it was time for work. <laughs> well, that's very true. And I think the sign that he settled on uh, was that a, uh, a, a, a midget in a Japanese admiral's uniform would uh, knock on the door at 9.01. <laughs> and uh, when that time came and went, he uh, saw it as a sure sign. That's yeah. right. That's right, because the midget wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, Isaiah oh. identifies himself as a sign in chapter 8, verse 18. Mm. Myself and my children yeah, are him. signs, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, isn't that a reference back to... Meher Shalal uh, Hashbaz. Yeah, at the start of verse 8 there. Mm. Which means swift to plunder and quick to carry away. What a name. Mm. That's a great name. Um, there is a, a really important thing in what we're talking about and, and what you were saying, Ken, about the terrifying people so that you can give them a magic way out. Um, there was a, there's a particular phrase that arrested me when I first heard it and it was actually in a class called Assyrian Era Prophets and Kings in which we studied this passage actually and the line my lecturer gave was, Prophecy is less a prediction of the future than it is a commentary on the present in light of future events. Ah. And so a lot of these things that talk about in that day, this will happen, and because of what you've done, this will happen, are not about a list of events that are about to occur and are more about, you know, verse um, five and six, and the Lord spoke to me again and said, my care for the people of Judah is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. They are rejoicing over what will happen, um, but it's not going to turn out well. You know, they, they are, mm. have their focus in totally the wrong place. And, that, and that's, that's quite a different, um, it's quite different, isn't it, to the oracles of the Greek legends. Mm. Because the oracles of the Greek legends, the whole the whole point of it is that the fates sort of been locked in, and someone hears some great oracle about their future, and they they may strive, but they can't escape very hard it. to, but they can't escape it, and if they, in fact their choices don't really have much influence at all. And uh, the whole point of it is that in several of the stories, it is their choices they're striving to avoid their fate exactly that enacts it. Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah, Achilles heel prophecy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Whereas uh, the Old Testament prophecy it seems to have the reverse intent. It seems to be emphasising the fact that the things you do at the moment, the choices you make, mm. do, do matter. They have huge significance. Except I'm not sure if the choices of the people of Israel at this point 
I, I don't know from the reading of these passages, if they did at this point in time suddenly turn and to God, uh, you know, confess everything that they'd done wrong, make a sincere effort at repentance, it doesn't seem to me in these passages that there's any promise that God will deliver them from the Assyrians. That seems to be a pretty much sure thing. Well, I mean, why else would we have the book of Jonah? Well, I was going to refer exactly to Jonah because it isn't Nineveh the capital of Assyria. I, I, that, that's my understanding, and I would think that he would hardly be less gracious and forgiving to the house of David uh, than he would be to Nineveh. I mean, we don't know if the people had turned around, maybe uh, God would have stood up for them. But in, in chapter 7, when the king Ahaz is worried about these other um, nations, who is it? It's Assyria and uh, Israel. Is mm-hmm. that right? Ganging up on Judah. Yes. Uh, God says, don't worry about them. It's fine. Those two kings, they're, they're not going to be your stress. Mm. Well, that's nice. But then in the very next verse, he says, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. That's the end. That's verse 16. And then in verse 17, it says, the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. In other words, God's saying, well, what you're fearing won't happen, but actually something worse is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it, it does seem to me that it's not really that conditional. And and when you read it in light of chapter nine, chapter nine is is going to be dealt with next week, uh, but it's it's a great messianic prophecy, and it really does paint a a picture of God's you know uh, dispensation of His grace, and these people have not followed Him, but He's not abandoning them. He will send someone. Uh, you know, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Mm. And and so to stop at the end of chapter 8 is not perhaps picking up the full narrative. But it does seem that God's more or less saying, I think that God is more or less saying, look, I'm sorry, you, your your decisions, your, no, your knowing decisions over many years have just led you to a point where this will happen. And it's just going to happen. And I, I do think that the passage suggests in its tenor that if they repented, it's almost a bit too late. They've sort of made their bed and they're going to have to lie on it. But God is not going to give up on them. Mm. And in chapter 9, there's this great sort of redemptive uh, passage. This is a tangent. No, it's not even a tangent. It's essentially disconnected from our previous discussions. Um, uh, but I'm fascinated by verses 19 uh, in chapter 8. Um, this consulting mediums and spiritists, I have to say anything remotely connected to the occult or uh, anything of that nature, I run as swiftly as I can. Um, uh, but uh, perhaps that's an indication of my lack of faith as opposed to my fear rather than um, uh, anything else. Uh, but I-, I thought it was interesting that he why consult the dead on behalf of the living. Um, the implication is, of course, that one can successfully consult the dead, just that it's not the best course to take. Um, I think that's interesting in light of Adventist doctrine about the state of the dead. 
Well, you can say, or, or certainly consult people who can convince you you're speaking to the dead. Um, yeah. But I think I think that that's a there is an interesting. I think this is a really key verse, but not for the reason that the lesson says. So the lesson does point out at, about how this passage shows how you know the influence of this kind of thing and how important the the doctrine of the state of the dead is, which I'm not going to argue with. But it's the it's halfway through the verse. Um, some someone may say to you, "Let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and their mutterings. They will tell us what to do." And it's I think that that part they're trying to find another solution, another path, another mode of behavior, another way of doing things. And I think I mean that's linked so much to the fact that. God has said, you know, I've I've been caring for them and they've turned away from me. And then don't listen to the people who say to you, well, there must be a way around this, some other way other than following what God has been telling us to do. There must be some other solution other than God, other than his it's way. In, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we want to be told what to do. Uh, yes. We don't want to have to make decisions ourselves. We don't want to have to bear the responsibility uh, the weighty burden that we have of uh, determining uh, our future, um, of making decisions that have consequences. Uh, we want to be able to shift the blame. Uh, we've wanted to do that from perhaps Genesis on. Um, and I was, I was thinking about that the other day, Ken. I was thinking how as a young child, I remember thinking... Uh, longing thoughts about how excellent it would be to be grown up where no one would be telling me what to do <laughs> and every student at school every high every high school student um obsesses over uniform requirements they can't wait to leave school because no one's going to be telling them what to do and uh you know i have to make so many decisions that exhaust me just the decision making process it would be a huge relief to have someone just say wear this here is your uniform this is your schedule <laughs> Here, here is here is some measurements for success. Um, these are what you're striving for. Your goals are pretty clearly outlined while you're at school, and um, you know it's uh, the process of having to m- make decisions is exhausting. Yes, it is, and it would be nice to be told. Um, well, often. I think what one thing, one of the things that is coming out in this passage is that God is telling them, "I, I have told you." Yes. Mm-hmm. Good point. And, and indeed, that applies for, for, for us uh, today. Um, uh, Paul uh, speaks often uh, about uh, what the, uh, the life of the disciple of Christ will be like. Um, uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, uh, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Um, put aside malice. Um, and uh, lust and greed, uh, and clothe yourselves with compassion. Uh, there are uh, many, many occasions where we're told quite explicitly that this is how to live. Yeah. Uh, often I think the uh, difficulty is not with uh, whether we've been told and whether we understand, uh, but whether we want to do it. Yeah, there's a passage, Ken, in Pilgrim's Regress, where, uh, which we referred to in a previous episode, uh, C.S. Lewis's 
version, sort of autobiographical version of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, but there's a there's a point there, um, sort of post conversion, when the main character is asked by someone, uh, "So did you intend to keep the rules of the landlord?" And and John looks back on his his unconverted life and says, "Well, no, I guess really when when push came to shove, I I, I didn't want to keep them." Mm. Uh, and then he says, but in another sense, I really wanted to keep them. <laughs> and he, he can't, because, because there is that tension, isn't there, that we all do want to lead a good life, mm. whatever a good life is. And and we want to live well. Uh, and uh, it's just hard remembering that sometimes when you are faced with the temptation mm. to tell a white lie or participate in office gossip or uh you know it's those it's in those moments where you the there's really strong tension and that tension's very strongly expressed in in these passages in isaiah the there's the people of israel you know and even the fact that ahaz asks for because ahaz at the start of chapter seven uh asks calls for isaiah doesn't he or am i thinking of a different story from isaiah no, he does. And what? Uh, he he is the news, and Isaiah goes to give him a message. So he doesn't. Okay. Yeah. He's he's at least receptive enough to accept Isaiah mm. to to hear the message. Uh, so there's that weird sort of love hate relationship that the nation of Israel has with their God. Hmm. Well, they the first message th- is a really good one, saying the attack that you fear is not yeah. going to happen, and it's some time later. Yeah. The passage we're talking about is later on. Isaiah came and said, so, <laughs> do you want to hear what I have to tell you? No, no, I don't. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, I think, of the, a sort of a, a parallel experience in terms of themes in the book of Jeremiah where the, the people left in Jerusalem come to Jeremiah and say, what should we do? Should we go to Egypt? Mm. And... And Jeremiah says, I'm not going to tell you. You're not going to do what I say anyway. And they say, no, no, we will. We will, I promise. So he tells them what God wants them to do, and immediately they do the opposite thing. Yeah. Do they, do they also say, or am I thinking of another story? Yeah, we knew you'd say that. Uh, yes. <laughs> we don't like it. <laughs> so we go and find somebody else who will tell us what we want to think. I, 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 I may have mixed stories up, but... And uh, that rings a bell, Ken. We should we should look that up. In fact, um, we're running out of time, though. That's the problem. Yeah. So we do need to start collecting thoughts. I think mm. where uh, I this is a difficult passage to collect thoughts from. Uh, it's not very comfortable. No, but I think I don't think it. I don't think a sort of things coming to a reckoning is ever very comfortable. I don't think speaking truth to power is ever a comfortable position to be in. You know, sometimes, it, sometimes hmm. the the message isn't everything's going to be great. Keep on doing what you're doing. Sometimes it is. You have created an impossible situation. You know, you use the phrase "truth to power," Clancy. Yes. I'm, 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 I want to challenge it. Right. Um, uh, I accept that sometimes speaking truth to power is uncomfortable for the the messenger power. And yeah. the messenger, um, 
but I don't think it's just truth to power. And indeed, mm. I'm not so sure that this is a, an example of speaking truth to power. Um, it's an example of speaking the truth. Mm. Uh, well, to, he's speaking to the king. Yeah, look, sure, he's speaking to the king, but it's not just the king. Mm. He's talking about is uh, Judah itself, uh, yeah. the whole the whole nation. So he's speaking to the whole nation, um, and saying, "This is what my people um, uh, have done, because mm. this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh." Mm-hmm. So speaking the truth to those who reject God um, uh, is not just those in power. No, um, I was speaking more generally of speech like this, not necessarily just this passage, mm. in saying that these are these are often not the messages that the audience wants to hear in in mm. in all these situations. I think, I mm. mean, the first half, the end of chapter seven, is explicitly to Ahaz, and then it widens. Mm. Um, it widens later on. I've got two thoughts um, springing out of those comments. One is that the the sort of tone of this did remind me of Jesus' uh, speech in Matthew 24, where Christ says he doesn't really say that there's any option for Jerusalem to be redeemed. He just says, basically, you know, bad stuff's going to happen. How dreadful will it be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers? Pray that it won't happen in winter on the Sabbath. It's it's going to happen. Mm. Uh, uh, But it doesn't mean... You're totally abandoned uh, because the days will be cut short mm. uh, for the sake of the elect. This is very much uh, language of the sort of day of trouble uh, imagery, the time of trouble that Adventists enjoy talking about. We probably enjoy talking about it too much. I don't think we, we when we say the phrase, we actually imagine something that's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, not in the same way, not 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 in the same way of like bees swarming up or floodwaters or razors shaving everyone's head or yeah. something. You, I mean, that that is actually really interesting, Cam. You've just this is it is all elaborate pictures. It's not explicit and specific. This will happen and this will happen, and it, it's not a. It's not something that you could write down as a list. It's a, a bee will come and the wasp will come and briars and thorns and water up to your chin. It, they are all images. It's all images of what's to come rather than a list of what's to come. And I find that a particularly mm. interesting point. It's funny how you said this is a thing we particularly focus on. There was in the translation that you read, Ken, you said, and to the law and to the testimony. And it's there are certain phrases that are used in certain situations that you know exactly where you are. And I realized the only I realized that the to the law and to the testimony made me think, ah oh, yes, I know where I am. I am speaking with Adventists. Yeah. It is a it is a phrase that we have we have very very much liked, but you hear less now that people use different Bible translations. But it is a yeah. phrase that we have loved and we have used and Pepper's sermons as a as an illusion of our own, as a picture of our own, to evoke a bigger thing. Now, yes, and Isaiah, and we we actually are sort of we've hedged our bets when it comes to the ministry that's been given to the to the Adventist Church and the reception we'll receive, because uh, you know we talk about we often talk about the incredible works that the Lord's doing 
through the church in usually far off places uh in the mission fields over here or in in the division over there or something else and and how exceptional and we we talk about how the evangelistic a series uh, so successful and so wonderful and this is obviously a mark of god's spirit being with us uh but when of course things don't go well it's easy to turn around and say oh well you know ours is a message like the message of Isaiah you know we're we're preaching a difficult message about a time of trouble and 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 god's judgment and there are some people who are, this obviously causes some distress and in point of fact the the more that people dislike our message, the more that people object to our, or find our Sabbath keeping objectionable, the more that people uh, find uh, our, you know, our witness in our life confronting. That's obviously a sign that God's spirit is with us, mm. because because it, so it seems to me that God's spirit is with us, whatever the, whatever the outcome of our efforts is. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the solution to that is, uh, because obviously there must be some times when perhaps our message is accepted with too much, uh, you know, joy and gratitude and happy good feelings, simply because we've watered it down a bit, and we should have really given the hard word when it was needed. But there might equally be times where we give out out there giving hard words, and that's not actually the message God wants to receive, and and. Uh, so we, there may be occasions where we're mistaken on both fronts. I'm not sure that we've got time to look at this, but uh, finishing off the text that we've read was uh, uh, darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. And that brought images to my mind of the sort of things that Jesus said about the uh, uh, the people who refused uh, his invitation, well, well, to a banquet. They mm-hmm. were cast out into... Wasn't it out into darkness? It's out into darkness. Weeping and gnashing of gnashing teeth. Gnashing of teeth, yes. Um, uh, no. So we see these. This this doesn't look like a pleasant place to be. Um, uh, and uh, well, my... there's many other references to darkness uh, in Christ's uh, ministry. And I thought it'd be interesting to explore that, but perhaps another time. Yeah. Yeah, well, Ken, I had a different set of... Um ideas spring to mind the the first one was uh, of my father telling his students at Avondale that if they uh, I don't know what it might be if they if they were persistent in handing in assignments late that they would be cast into the outer darkness uh, <laughs> where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, and I've, I've employed the phrase with my students and they look at me in blank bewilderment yeah <laughs> and uh, which I enjoy so uh uh, yes, uh, and uh, the other the other thought, isn't it, that's really sort of coming into focus so much is a is a smaller comment that I think Luke made in one of our early episodes on Isaiah, where he contrasted the ministry of Isaiah with the ministry of Jonah. I mean, how how different mm. Uh, mm. was that uh, Jonah's message to a people who who by rights really shouldn't have got it? They were steeped in paganism, and yet they got it straight away. And Jonah's upset by it. And it, what we're finding in Isaiah is it's the opposite in every way. The people really should have got this message, you know, decades, centuries before Isaiah was sent. Uh, it's, uh, 
it's not really a new it's not giving them any new information it's just re, re, telling them to remember the things that they've already been told and uh, and uh, the people don't get it well we're running out of time and in the absence of any sort of uh, definitive closing statement i might i might throw that task to our listeners if anyone of you has a what you think a, a good summary of of what the take home message should be from the second half of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah chapter 8, then feel free to email it to us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. We're glad you've joined us. Next week's going to be a little more uplifting. Isaiah 9 is a a famously uh, positive and and, uh, uplifting passage and uh, perhaps provides some balance or or context for what God's plan is for the nation of Israel. And it would be wrong, I think, to stop at the end of chapter 8. So please join us next week. And we look forward to uh, you listening to our discussion then.